Please be advised that this podcast explores the topics of death, burial and exhumation and contains content that some listeners may find distressing. If you're listening for the first time, it will make more sense if you start with episode one. It's October 1901 and the removal of remains from the Devonshire Street Cemetery is supposed to have finished. The newspapers have gone quiet as preparations are made for the levelling of the site. But toward the end of the month, a single report appears in The Truth, a Sydney tabloid with a reputation for printing sensational, gossip-driven stories. Scandal, screams the headline, above an article that details the accounts of several workers who had helped dig remains from the cemetery. Only two sections were properly trenched, they claimed, the Church of England and the Jewish grounds. In all remaining sections, the digging was done in a perfunctory manner. The gang leaders not giving their workers time to sink below three or four feet. One man was prepared to point to a spot where the remains of 11 corpses were still lying in their graves, while all description of bones were strewn about the sand and earth without any attempt made to gather them for conveyance and burial at La Perouse. They urged the attention of Edward O'Sullivan, the Minister for Public Works. Otherwise, they say, the levelling of the ground will be seriously delayed by reason of having to renew the search and gather up the remains still left there. 118 years later, we can safely say that the truth, at least in this instance, had earned its title. Recent digging for the new Sydney Metro line at Central Station has unearthed what was, in fact, left behind at the Devonshire Street Cemetery. You're listening to The Burial Files, a podcast about love, loss, and the layers of history that lie beneath our feet. It's about rediscovering the places we think we know. I'm Elise Edmonds, Senior Curator at the State Library of New South Wales. In this, our last episode, we'll be taking you behind the scenes of the archaeological dig that's taking place at Sydney Central Station. What can it tell us about the exhumation process? And what is its significance for the city of Sydney? As we speak, tunnelling machines are boring under Sydney's city and harbour, carving a path for the new Sydney metro. When the line is complete in 2024, 31 stations linked by 66 kilometres of track will move an additional 100,000 passengers. Around the city, sites have been chosen for the new underground stations. If high-rise buildings were in the way, they've been demolished and diggers have moved in. The tunnels will pass right under Central Station and engineering firm Lang O'Rourke will undertake an ambitious structural feat. So the Metro Box is the enabling structure. This is James Pearce, Construction Director responsible for overseeing all Metro-related works at Central Station. We basically sink a big concrete box over the top of the tunnels, which run under Central, and then that allows us to construct the station within the box. So the box is about 220 metres long, about 30 metres wide at the top, and roughly 30 metres down to the tunnels. Then we break into the tunnels and construct the new station within what's called the station box. To clear the way for the Metro box, several platforms have been torn out and digging has begun. 
we demolished platform 13, 14, and 15. And to get them out of the way, we literally split the rail lines in the middle, pulled them out, and then we do all our works in the middle. So the station box, we're gonna build the top slab first and then excavate everything under that. So to develop that methodology, we had to understand what was here and which sort of led us into a lot of the historical records. Since the start of the project, Lang O'Rourke have been partnering with Artifact, a cultural heritage and archaeology company who helped develop the methodology for approaching the site. This went some way to helping the team anticipate what they might find once they started digging. We did know that there were two existing stations here. Most of them have been built over and covered. And we sort of anticipated that most of them would have been removed down to ground level or a bit below. So there were, we always expected footings, fewer walls and some railway lines, but not the really, really different and really interesting things which we've come to see. It wasn't long after they got going that James's team hit upon the first of these unexpected finds. We were doing the piling along the edge of the, the new station box and we found some weird shaped blocks. No one knew what it was at the start. It took us a little bit of time to understand it, which Artifact did a fair bit of research and we determined that it was potentially crypt or a vault. And once we found the surrounds, it was uh, in a square shape. Everyone knew that it was the real deal. We just didn't know what was in it and that, that triggered the next stage. Artifact moved their team onto the site to start the painstaking process of uncovering the vault and investigating what else might be in the area. The most remarkable find to date, widely reported in the press, is a coffin nameplate belonging to a Joseph Thompson, allowing identification of the remains that were found with it. From what we can see, everybody thought they'd got most of the stuff there, but maybe it got too slow or too hard, or there became a point in time where the government said everybody out of the cemetery, and that's it, the show's over. So we are seeing that there's a lot of things still in the ground. We have been consistently excavating and finding remains really for, you know, a good part of nine months now. So we're up to 66 grave cuts and five, six, seven volts, depending on where we are at any point in time. We've done a lot of work in that time, but a lot of very detailed work. I mean, in a normal construction site, you could dig that area probably in a couple of days, and it's taken us six months to get there with teaspoons, paintbrushes and trowels. The place that's been chosen for the Metro Box is essentially a 30 metre wide trench with the city and country platforms running along either side of it. The trench extends down to the end of the contemporary platforms and a bit beyond. It cuts a path through what was once the southern end of the Roman Catholic portion of the cemetery and a large part of the congregational before continuing over what was once Devonshire Street and into the old railway yard. Yeah. Have you got glasses? Yeah, she's got glasses. Oh, good, yeah. Glasses. All right, let's go. OK. As we're led along the temporary fencing towards yeah. the site entrance, we pause to look down over the fence into the trench. So if you can, if you look over there, you'll see a, a sort of hexagonal shaped piece of sandstone. Yep. So that's the footing for a rather large and elaborate gatepost, basically formed the entrance to the goods yard. So where we're at is pretty much on the footpath and Devonshire Street's pretty much where Jules okay. is. So. Ian Stewart and Julian McLaughlin from Artifact are showing us their dig site today. And as soon as we walk through the security fencing, we can see their cordoned off section of the trench. So they're kind of carrying on back there, are they, with the actual metro? Yeah, yeah. At the boundary there where we, where we demonstrated is absolutely nothing. They're going down and excavating to their levels. A few of the archaeological team are at work down on the ground and one stands directing a hose over a big container covered with a sheet of mesh. 
sieving through buckets and buckets of sand. The whole operation takes up a fairly large portion of James's Metro Box site. It is a significant um, area that they have to take up, two-thirds of our site width and uh, a bit more than an eighth of the length of the box. So they are very heavily involved in that area, but it's such a delicate and respectful operation that we need to give them all of the work area that they need to ensure that they can do their work safely, productively, and with the respect that the people who were previously there are due. In terms of when we go across to the eastern side and excavate the remaining 10 metres, no one has any idea what's in there. So it's a bit of a lottery at the moment. It's an incredibly uneven area that we're walking over, filled with mud because it's been raining for several days. But in between, you can clearly make out these extraordinary shapes, which are coffin shapes. And they're obviously the, um, the graves that have been examined by the archaeological team. It's actually extraordinary. I can't believe we're actually standing even though we're surrounded by railway platforms, you can see the clock tower over there, you can see the city buildings. We are actually standing in the Devonshire Street Cemetery. The cemetery is still here and we're standing in it. And we've got archaeologists down on the ground here, painstakingly going through with their trowels. Holly May is currently excavating a grave. We've not come down onto any human remains, but we do actually have some coffin remains in there. So she's just painstakingly going around the edges, trying to expose any of the wood. Well, you can already see that perfectly straight line yeah, that, yeah. on the edge there. Yeah. That's obviously the edge of the, the shape of the grave. But to me, that looks like a child's grave. Can you make, can you make that not, not assumption? Really, no. It just looks very small. But, but yeah. also, if you think about it, people in 1901 were generally, on average, slightly smaller anyway. So, um, and, the, and these graves are probably a lot earlier than that because they're obviously put down in the 1890 onwards, so. Jules and Ian lead us across the site to one of the grave cuts the team has finished working on. An almost perfect coffin shape which sits around a metre out from the brick and sandstone footings of what was once Platform 13. Well, this one that we're looking at, we don't think was exhumed. So what we're looking at is the original interment cut. What we've noted is that the original interment cuts actually take the shape of the coffins, so they're not a perfect rectangle. I think it may be just an easier way to actually dig the size of the coffin and then put it in, you know, less energy required. Is this where Joseph Thompson was found? Yeah. Yeah, just he, right, this is his, this is his grave. And so it wasn't just his um, skeletal remains, but you obviously also found parts of the coffin and the coffin plate, right? Yeah. Correct, yeah. yeah. We came down upon it um, simply by scraping with our trowels and our spades. And we were all just like, oh my God. Very exciting moment for all of us. Because you weren't really, ex wait, you weren't, you're kind of expecting, but not really. We knew there was a possibility and we always had that in the back of our mind. We hadn't found anything to, to date, so it was the first sort of big, big find on that one. I think it's interesting for everybody and they enjoy doing it. And it's, we, we do it all with respect. You know, if we hadn't have come in here and recovered what we had, it, it would have been obliterated essentially because of the project. So what sort of things have you been finding in like, for example, that sieving process that's happening over there? With a lot of the grave cuts, a lot of these have been exhumed. We've found coffin nails, remnants of the wood. Uh, in a couple of the grave cuts, we found some coins. 
other than that, we're getting a few, few very few skeletal remains. You know, most of the skeletons we found, which I think about how many we found, about eight, had not been complete. So bones have disappeared for whatever reason. They've rotted or they've they've decomposed or things like that. And then the coffin just degrades. It's often really cheap wood. Can we go and take a look at the brick vault? Yeah. So amidst all of this chaos of uneven ground and mud and coffin-shaped holes in the ground and diggers, lots of machines, there's these incredibly neat square vaults of um, brick and also sandstone constructions from the 19th century. It's just quite um, an amazing scene. So this is uh, one of the burial vaults. It's a brick burial vault. The bits of metal coming out of the side are actually coffin racks. You can't see right now, but it's probably a metre deeper than it actually is. The water has oh, wow. filled up in it from all the rain. Have you mentioned the wedding ring? No. Oh, we've got a wedding ring out of here, um, out of this, out of the vault too. It doesn't have anybody's name on it, but it's in very good condition. Whether, whether the person perhaps dropped the ring in or whether it was on somebody who was, who was in there, it's, it's hard to know. Because you think the guys who did the exhumation, and you wonder about them pocketing certain things that they found. I, I would have thought that might have been a concern. Uh, and I, I wonder whether the families were involved in supervising. Yeah. And they were, often. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so... There are some, some fantastic photos of, of people, like the relatives, yeah, standing, looking over the graves as there's a guy digging in them. I think these, those days, people saw the dead as being much more present in their lives, which is why they were so concerned about the, the safe removal and exhumation of the bodies to a safer place. Not long after the government started removing unclaimed remains, concerns arose over whether all of the bones were actually being surfaced. When an early report revealed that 5,000 bodies couldn't be located, the Minister for Works directed that the soil in every portion be turned over with a view to the discovery of remains so that it will be impossible for any to be overlooked. It's difficult to know if this order was carried out in the upper parts of the ground. After the exhumation workers moved out, tonnes of earth were shifted as the sandhills were raised, flattening the area for the station's foundations. Photographs in the library's collection show the site being prepared. Horses and carts arriving for refills of earth are dwarfed by the section of the hillside above them. If any bones were left behind in these sections, they would have become part of the fill that was dumped into a depression in Belmore Park or used to level out other areas of the site. So while the Roman Catholic section would have been on a high enough rise to be trenched, the congregational came down to street level and the works that followed clearly didn't go deep enough to remove the burials that were missed during the exhumation process. Puzzling because the historical records suggest this section, which is the congregational section, was done first. So maybe it was a bit slapdash and they tightened up. With the vaults, they may have just simply taken the, the long bones and things that are identifiable from a skeleton and not really taken the small bones because we're finding more of those and less of whole skulls but I think sometimes they may have just simply not gone down far enough or been in a hurry. Genealogists have said for a long time that they weren't quite sure about how efficient it was and here we have some evidence that suggests that maybe it wasn't all that efficient because we have a record that Mr Thompson 
was actually moved to, to Bunurong. So it clearly wasn't. So what happens to them once you find them? That's a decision for Sydney Metro to go through a process. So it's a matter of consultation with the relatives and where they're not known, consultation with the community. And that's absolutely the key to the whole thing. We want to treat everybody respectfully and we want to, in a sense, finish the job that was done in 1901. While this consultation process is underway, the remains are being stored at the University of Sydney's Shellshire Museum, run by Denise Donlan, the forensic anthropologist we met in episode one. She's still in the process of assessing the bones, but in the meantime, Sydney Metro have put a call out for descendants of Joseph Thompson to come forward. It's that sort of sudden sense of closing a a massive gap. You know, 161 years after he dies, here he is, in the public mind, in view, in our present. And that, I think, is the thing that's so extraordinary about it. Penny Russell is Joseph Thompson's great, great, great granddaughter. When she read about the findings in the paper, she was at work at the University of Sydney, where she just happens to be a professor of history. I was there in my office in, um, in the McCallum building, just near the main quad, and reading in the Telegraph that the bones were now in the Shellshire Museum for safekeeping, which is in, you know, in anatomy and in medicine. As I looked out my window at the building, I thought, OK, there he is. Yeah. The coincidences don't stop there. Penny also just happens to be researching and writing a book about Thompson, and a few key pieces of her research material are part of the State Library's collection. So there's no better person to tell us a bit about who Joseph Thompson actually was. There's one surviving letter from him, which is here in the Mitchell Library, and it's a letter that he wrote in 1833 when he was wondering whether he should come to Australia. What is interesting about this to me, in a way, is the fact that here is a letter from somebody who didn't come as a convict, who didn't come with the idea of sort of taking up land, didn't come with a lot of wealth behind him. He paid for his passage and with a family. So he sort of he doesn't fit the sort of your, your classic immigrants of this time in, in any way. And here's a letter which is actually kind of spelling out for his cousin what, he, what he's thinking about, what's driving him. And the problem is that, you know, his income, his means have been declining annually for a number of years while his family has been growing. He's now got 12 children, six of each. His oldest daughter is married. His oldest son is away at sea. He's got other daughters of marriageable age who are not married. He's got sons who are going to need employment and he's clearly not feeling that he can absorb them into his business. He's living in Shadwell in East London. He's been there for about 30 years as a draper. So from the time he was quite a young man, he had his draper's shop on the high street of Shadwell. And so there in his 50s, he's making up his mind that it's not going to get better that something has to be done. He's looking at sons with no prospects, at daughters with no husbands and wondering what he can do for them. So it's all about laying a foundation for future prosperity. It's all about his family. If I am spared, I must not be idle. He's got this sort of this sense of obligation. And then he sends that letter off and it arrives in in the colony in August. By October, he's on the ship and leaving. So there's no time for a letter to come back. He just does it. Thompson packs up the contents of his home and shop and loads it all onto a ship. He arrives in Sydney on the 1st of May, 1834, accompanied by his wife, Mary, his brother, Samuel, and 10 of his 12 children. Thompson wastes little time in setting up his draper's business, selling fabric for clothing and furnishings to the residents of Sydney. Over the next couple of decades, that business would flourish and Thompson would achieve his goal. 
just in 1858. It's about six months before his death. He's managed to move into this suburban house, set up his carriage, and he's sort of living the life of a gentleman. He started to put a squire after his name. He calls himself a gentleman, which he never did at first. So for someone who kind of was forced out of London by his declining means over the next less than 20 years, he's established a business which gives him sort of quite significant estate to leave to his children. So all the sons kind of flourish to varying degrees, but, you know, there's a strong level of prosperity there. The daughters all marry eventually and have, you know, their husbands have varied fortunes through the 1840s. You start to get a really interesting sense of the the divergent fortunes of men and women by looking at this sort of sample of (laughs) this even sample of of sons and daughters, in which the most obvious thing is that the daughters die much younger, having produced many, many children. So by the time Joseph Thompson dies in 1858, three of his daughters have died and one son was an infant. And his will, which is this most controlling, extraordinary document, you know, which is portioning out of his means, but he's also obviously got a real sense of this is this he's achieved something. He's realised this, this, this very specific, precise ambition of, of providing for his family. Joseph Thompson is 80 when he dies, having amassed a fortune of £28,000. That's just over $6 million in today's money. The lid of his coffin is affixed with a beautiful cast metal plate, a piece of coffin furniture commonly used in high-status burials. It's engraved with his name, his date of death and his age. Above the engraving is a moulded frieze where two angels holding palm fronds stand on either side of a draped urn. I did know Joseph Thompson was buried in the Devonshire Street Cemetery. His brother was buried there beside him in 1860 and his wife was buried there in 1871 by special permission to be you know, to be placed beside him. But by that time, it has a reputation as a place you know, that would perhaps make you think twice about burying your relatives there. So it, it, why there? Even in 1858, there might have been options. And this is just wildly sentimental and I'm making it up. But a few years after they arrived in 1835, their youngest son died. So he's about three and a half years old. I don't know where he was buried, but conceivably it was there. There may have been a family plot from that time. So there's, you know, that possibility as well, even if there was never a gravestone for the child. But, you know, who knows? The other notable thing about Thompson is that he's one of the founding members of Sydney's Congregational Church, still on Pitt Street today. It was a tight-knit community who all seem to have been involved in one another's financial affairs. While Thompson isn't someone who's remembered by history, he was amassing his fortune alongside men who are. David Jones, a draper much like Thompson, whose name adorns the entrance to one of Australia's better-known department stores, and John Fairfax, who laid the foundations for a huge media empire when he bought the Sydney Herald in 1841. Here is somebody no one's ever heard of, existing just out of sight, just below the line of a fairly familiar historical record. So to realise that Joseph Thompson was also there as a founding sort of member of this church and how does he fit in? And then to see him as a draper, you know, alongside David Jones, the draper, uh, you know, looking at their ads almost in competition in some of the papers and things, and you think, so he's right there and yet just out of sight. Understanding who Thompson was is a process of discovery that Penny is approaching not so much as a descendant of Thompson, but as a historian who's looking for a way to paint a bigger picture. It's a family history, not in the sense that I'm trying to find my roots. 
obviously you start with that sense of connection because that's where I started. But then thinking, okay, by this accident of relationship, I've kind of randomly selected a family that lives in this time. And now what I want to do is actually, you know, sort of use that as a point of entry. What was it like to be part of that middle class, you know, at, at a time when the middle class is tiny and doesn't really have an acknowledged existence? What's it like to be congregationalist in a, a, a world that's sort of ruled by the Church of England, by British administration? What's it like to be a commercial figure, to be a free immigrant in a time that's still very much ruled by convicts? They're carving out this path for themselves in a world that seems to be a world of opportunity and necessity, you know, but in so, in so many ways oblivious to the, the implications of what they are doing for others, oblivious to any sense of Indigenous ownership, for example, while certainly sort of avowing themselves as sort of keen to protect the lives of Aboriginal people and so on, but still very oblivious to the, the effects of their own actions and the way they are part of that. This is why I want to start with the family, to sort of plunge into the middle of that and just without ever knowing what it felt like, because you can't, you know, to try and sketch out more and more of what all of the bits of the picture actually are. While Penny continues to work on her book, she'll also be participating in the process of deciding what happens to Thompson's remains, alongside any other descendants who come forward. My modest calculation, just based on the fact that Joseph and Mary had about 60 grandchildren, would be, you know, then as we move through generations, there's probably about 2,000 of us out there. I understand that at least 70 or so have made themselves known to Sydney Metro. But the idea is that descendants now will have the right to have a say in what happens to Thompson's body now. Having a say in the fate of these remains, the bones of a man she's never met, has raised some interesting questions for Penny. What is my relationship to these bones? Why is it important that we, as descendants, we this collective way we will meet each other, you know, presumably to have this conversation, but that we have this sort of relationship to these particular bones and a say in their disposition now because of the name on the coffin. And I think about Samuel, who had no children, and Mary, who did, but he didn't get a nameplate. So they're sort of, again, you know, the patriarch kind of gets the, the name carefully attached to the coffin so that when he's unearthed all these years later, there he is, sort of an entity still, a kind of an identifiable person and a person with a history and a person with descendants. And so he wouldn't imagine these 2,000 descendants at all. He's got no connection to us, but now suddenly we have a connection to him that is understood as a relationship and that we have to now sort of act on. But the only thing that I can see as being the right thing to do is what his son asked for at the time, which was that the headstones and the bodies be moved to Bunurong because that was the, the plan of the son who actually did have a relationship, whereas what we have now is much more an imaginative than a, than a real relationship. It strikes me, as Penny says this, that all any of us can ever have is an imaginative relationship with the past. Whatever remnants may exist in our present, we can never really know those places or people, what it felt like to be them at that time, to bury yet another loved one in an overcrowded sandhill on the outskirts of town. But trying to get close, to gain some understanding, is what makes history so interesting.
But our imaginations are called upon not only when thinking about the past, but when dreaming of what's to come. When Edward O'Sullivan opened Central Station in 1906, he didn't imagine me or you, but he did imagine the future. A place where this building would live on to serve the people of Sydney. There it stands, in its imperfect majesty, and there it will remain for all time. A matter of pride with the people of New South Wales and the monument of the man who erected it. Central has remained with us so far, and it's difficult to imagine Sydney without it. But change is inevitable. Ten short years after that golden whistle blew, the city railway arrived, transforming the station. Platforms were destroyed and new ones built. Additional tracks were laid and buildings extended. And open heart surgery was carried out across the city as tunnels were dug for what would become the city circle line. Now, 100 years later, Central is seeing its next major evolution. I think the metro overall is going to be absolutely life-changing. I think you go to most other big cities in the world, they have a metro. This is something that's a generational change and people will look at for 100 years and say, well, yeah, that, that's how we get around town. I think it's the way of the future and I think it's great. In the year 2124, Sydney will celebrate Metro's 100th birthday. The Devonshire Street Cemetery will be lost to memory once more and a future generation will take their turn to rediscover a place they think they know. The extraordinary minds and passions of historians will hopefully still be there to guide them. We know we couldn't have told this story without them. For me as a historian, I don't want a city to remain stagnant. I don't want it to be preserved in aspic. A city is a dynamic and almost organic kind of being. And I think that the evolution of our places and spaces is important to the kind of vibrancy of our community. Sydney is an ancient place, a changing place, and a place that doesn't have neat layers. And unfortunately, we're still dealing with the legacy of the stories we've told ourselves for the last few generations. We don't acknowledge that an Aboriginal history and heritage sits right through all of the non-Aboriginal history and heritage. And I like to think of it this way, we don't, you know, Romans don't drive around in chariots these days. We don't say that they've lost, the Romans have lost their culture. It's the same with Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people don't practice their culture the same way, but just because of that doesn't mean that they've lost the culture. And in fact, it's still thriving today with many of the descendants of Aboriginal people living in Sydney. I prefer to study the past to get into the minds and the behaviours and the beliefs of people who were vastly different from us. Because I think that's actually a more useful way of understanding the world that we live in today as well. That there are always going to be people who will never quite understand, but we can do our best to actually make sense of their world and give respect to the way they choose to live or the way they have to live. This is complicated stuff. Our histories are complicated. You know, they're not easily narratable as heroic or dramatic or tragic. They're kind of combinations of everything. By looking closely at, at a cemetery full of headstones, full of stories of grief and, and terror and misery sometimes, you get this whole new angle, you get this whole new reading of Sydney in these years. You know, it's not the only reading. You, you learn some things from a graveyard, not everything, but it's, it's a different kind of way in, a looking um, askance at, at this history. Dead Central, the exhibition you've heard a bit about in this podcast, 
has had its run extended and will now be open until May 2020 here at the State Library. If you're in Sydney, come and check it out to see many of the items we've been talking about in this podcast. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed listening to The Burial Files, please tell someone. Tell your friends or family or colleagues or just someone you're sitting next to on the train. Take a minute to rate and review us. It does help other people find the podcast. We want to thank all our contributors who have helped make this podcast possible. Paul Irish, Ronald Briggs, Denise Donlan, Lisa Murray, Peter Hobbins, Katie Gilchrist, James Dunk, Bill Fippen, Annie Turnbull, Rachel Franks, Greta Logue, Howard Collins, Keith Johnson, William Blackledge, Penny Russell, James Pierce, Ian Stewart and Julia McLaughlin. The Burial Files was conjured up by me, Elise Edmonds, and its producer, Sabrina Organo. Foundational research by me, Elise Edmonds. Additional research, recording, writing and editing by Sabrina Organo. Many thanks to Rawia Jenkins, Vanessa Bond and Mary Liz Andrews for saying yes. Thanks to Vanessa Bond, Mary Liz Andrews, Annie Tong, Kathy Perkins, Catherine Timbrell and Jude Page for their feedback throughout the production process. This episode features the voice of Rupert Dagger. This series has been mixed by Sonar Sound. I'm Elise Edmonds. <laughs>